Hi, my name is Jenna Speglia. I am a biologist and a biology education researcher at Stony Brook University. I'm a set and Catherine sister, but. <laughs> We cannot have learning happen in our classrooms if we do not first and foremost engage with the thinking of our students. I'm Catherine Speglia, and this is Well Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for being here. Hi, Kat. So as my listeners probably heard in your introduction, we share a last name, and it is not a common last name. So yes, Jenna, you are my sister. So thank you for being here. (laughs) I'm very excited to be here. Yes, this should be fun. This is a celebration of my 50th episode. I thought I could do whatever I wanted, so I'm, I'm having you on. And we will be talking about your work in biology, which right now you are focusing on education in in biology and science. But before we do that, I have to ask you, what is an example of a time in which being a woman has empowered you? So, you know, if you had asked me that question a few years ago, I think my answer uh, would have been shorter and simpler. And so I'll start with that answer and then how I've kind of um, changed it through time. So two years ago, my answer would have been defending my dissertation uh, for my PhD, eight and a half months pregnant. You know, that's not very common in, uh, in biology, at least, but in a lot of STEM fields is, is for women to have children uh, during their PhD programs. It's often actively frowned upon. You often don't even hear people talking about wanting anything other than academic pursuits in a lot of PhD programs and a lot of STEM fields. And so in some ways, you know, defending this really complicated dissertation that involved the year of field work and all of these, you know, complicated genetic techniques uh, while being two weeks away from delivering my first child was very empowering as a woman. And that would have kind of been the answer to my question two years ago. And it's changed a bit since then. Because of course, after you defend your dissertation eight and a half months pregnant, you then have to become an academic with your PhD with a newborn. And this, you know, as I'm sure all the listeners are not surprised to hear, is difficult. And something I've realized in the past four years is that for me, it's been critical to have a mentor who paid a lot of attention to my professional development. I mean, this is important for all people in all fields anyway. And I do think though, for parents who are very involved with their children and in particular uh, women, this is absolutely critical for our success, at least for my success. And so my mentor paid a lot of very focused attention to my professional development and was making sure I was doing the right things for my growth at the right times and that I wasn't missing anything. I went to my first conference two months postpartum. And, you know, these for me was the right decision to stay present in the field in ways that were appropriate and comfortable for me as a, as a new mom and, and really not, not get left behind. And so I didn't get left behind. And I, it, it seems likely and scary to me that with a different mentor, I possibly could have been. And so this is actually an empowering realization, although this sounds in a lot of ways very negative, but it was an empowering realization in the truest meaning of the word empowering because I realized how much power that I, as someone who will be taking on a lot of mentees in the future, 
have to, in very real ways, support the professional development and growth of uh, the students that I work with and I'm responsible for. And this isn't just for women who choose to have children. This is for every, every student that I take on. As great as your longer, more complicated explanation was, I am so glad that you mentioned defending your dissertation eight and a half months pregnant because a little known secret about this podcast and that question is that that moment you defending your dissertation eight and a half months pregnant is the reason I came up with that first question. I decided I was going to do that years before. I was at a, I was at a talk. And the uh, person who was giving the talk casually mentioned at the very beginning of her talk that the last time she was on that stage, she was eight months pregnant defending her dissertation. And I decided at that moment, I'm almost certainly going to do that. And and then I did do that. That's the most you thing I've ever heard. But yeah, I mean, you were the motivation behind my headlining question. And it was that exact thing. So I... I didn't want to tell you this before asking you the question. I was curious to see if you brought it up. All right, so why did you become a scientist? I don't normally ask such straightforward questions, but because you're my sister, I'm particularly interested about the reasons for choosing, you know, to do what you do. Obviously, I know some of them, but really, what was at the heart of of this journey? Well, I think a lot about why people choose to become scientists. Um, it's pretty central to my to my work. Uh, I am in, in, very interested in understanding why uh, the fields of ecology and evolution and other STEM fields have so little diversity. And so what is it that propels some people to go into science and not others? So I, I think a lot about this in the abstract. And oftentimes what you what you hear is that people have a science identity going back really far. So way before, they choose to go to graduate school. They often grow up in areas where they had access to wildlife or they talked about science with their parents. And so they really had this STEM identity really early on. And in a lot of ways, becoming a scientist was embodying that identity. That I don't think was the case for me. I really don't think so. You know, I grew up in an urban area like you did with parents who are very similar to your parents. Um, who, although actually they talk about science a good deal now, I don't recall many conversations about science growing up. And so I don't think for me, I had this STEM identity kind of pulling me into science. Instead, I recall uh, taking my first biology class and finding this subject really important and really hard. So though I didn't have a STEM identity, I did have a, a weird aspect of my identity where I did hard things and things that I wasn't particularly good at. And so I do think that that is what propelled me to initially like sign up for a biology major in college. I went into college with a biology major and I don't really know why uh, other than it seemed important and worth my time. And central to it really becoming part of my identity was actually a study abroad program that I attended in my uh, second year of college in Madagascar. And that's really where I went from being a biology major or science major to wanting to be an actual scientist. Um, I spent time living in a a pretty remote area of Madagascar, which at the time, very few uh, foreigners really visited. And I just loved it. And I didn't realize I had that in me to love nature so much. And so that's really where I decided I wanted to be a scientist. And and say at that point, this STEM identity really did take hold. and, And becoming a scientist was like the logical next step. Yeah, that tracks. I, I always thought the story was Jenna became a scientist because biology was really hard for her. 
to your point about mom and dad not really talking about science much when we were kids, that is true. But dad definitely would always ask questions that to make us think really hard though. I like, remember we would just like be sitting there and I was like five. <laughs> and one time he just like put his book down. He was like, Catherine, where do you think language comes from? You know, I think you were asked these types of questions. I think mom and dad always viewed you as a thinker, which makes sense. You always were. I do not think I was viewed as a thinker, as a deep thinker um, that much when I was young. So I don't know if I was asked these really compelling questions. I'll have to speak to mom and dad about that. They'll probably deny it, but. Yeah, they don't remember. No, I don't think so. They don't even know what, they don't remember which child they were talking to. No, well, right, no. Maybe it has something to do with you being the oldest and they were more just focused on like, parenting you and doing the right things but by the time I came around they were so used to parenting that dad was like taking it to another level (laughs) yeah yeah and I don't think they they don't know where the science interest came from I mean they thought that it was just you know I remember telling them I was going to go to Madagascar for a city abroad program program and they're like okay sure I I guess And they were fine with it, but kind of waiting for me to change my mind, mm-hmm. um, especially when they looked on, a, on the map of the earth to figure out where indeed Madagascar was. Yeah, they were probably like, we love to travel. Maybe we'll come visit. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So that was one of the first things that they said and some of our aunts and uncles said. And then literally I have this memory of one of our aunts looking, you know, identifying where she lives on the globe. She had a physical globe and then turning the globe all the way around and be like, oh, mm, yeah, I don't know about that. All right, let's talk about what you actually do as a scientist. So your current research is focused on science education at the college level. But what is your research really about? And frankly, what's wrong with how we educate undergraduate students in science and other technical fields you know I, I realize that's a big question that's a big one I'll answer the first one first and then that second one is is so important I'm glad you're asking it so overall my kind of you know research goal in my work is to improve the quality and the equity of biological learning and that's really my big 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 picture goal and there are two main prongs of my research I conduct studies of conceptual understanding of biological reasoning and thinking in order to design more effective learning environments Um, And then the other kind of big prong of my work is that I investigate the causal interaction. So not just associative, but causally, how um, important variables are relating to each other. The causal interactions among affective variables, for example, evolution acceptance, and psychosocial variables, such as a sense of belonging in STEM, and also background variables, such as race and gender and socioeconomic status. And so I investigate their causal interactions with one another to uncover how they impact biological learning and persistence in the biological discipline. And so for both of these research prongs, it's completely essential to have good measures of the variables we care about. So central to all of my work is measurement theory, which is basically how we measure the stuff we can't see in a way that allows us to say valid things about them. You know, measuring things really well, things we can't see, measuring those really well is central to to all of my work. And um, is, I would say, one of the major areas of weakness in a lot of education work is the quality of how we're measuring things. And then so for your second question, what is wrong with how we educate undergraduate students in science and other technical fields? 
So the, the short answer, and then I'll give the long one, because there of course is one, is that simply put the traditional way of teaching students at the college level is inconsistent with how people learn. And this traditional way of teaching is very old. And it, the, it basically looks like students sitting in a chair, expert or teacher in the front of the room telling students facts. And this is inconsistent with how learning happens. And so it used to be thought that students came into classrooms with like a blank slate. There was really not much in their brain about the particular subject that they were going to learn in that classroom. And this, this kind of is called the tabula rasa model of how learning happens. Tabula rasa means blank, blank slate in Latin. So students come into the classroom, they have no prior thinking or ideas about the particular topic that you are going to teach them. And it's the instructor's job to fill that void with correct information. You know, research since has shown clearly that this is not how the brains of anyone works. And in fact, especially in the sciences, it turns out people are reasoning about, thinking about and developing explanations about scientific phenomena from an extremely early, early age, from extremely early, like, you know, more or less when they first entered the world. People are thinking about and reasoning about the, the natural world. And so when a, students walk into a college classroom, they've been reasoning about the subject I'm going to teach them, biology, for at least 18 years, maybe 18 years minus a day. And they have within their, their minds a lot of ideas, a lot of which are uh, uh, correct and a lot of which are incorrect. And so these ideas, it can exist together in models to explain the phenomena that they've experienced their whole lives. So for example, you get closer to a fire and it gets hot, an observation that everyone has had and hopefully pretty early in life. Um, and this idea of proximity to fire and the resulting heat for many people has transferred into explanations of the seasons that are biologically inaccurate. The idea that as the earth is closer to the sun, that's when we have summer. And in fact, technically when the earth is closer to the sun, it's actually technically winter. The distance from the sun is completely irrelevant uh, in, in terms of deciding the seasons on earth. But it is a very reasonable idea that stems very directly from experiences that uh, people have had with the natural world. And so that's the landscape that every educator is, is dealing with when they have students is that students have minds full of ideas. And so what this means is that we cannot have learning happen in our classrooms if we do not first and foremost engage with the thinking of our students. We have to understand their thinking. We have to then design our curricula based on their thinking, draw out their thinking, and help them break down the models that they've been building and love. I mean, many students love the models that they've built over all these years in their heads, help them break those down and reform correct or normative scientific models. It's extremely hard, the thing that we're asking students to do in, in a classroom that is really focused on student thinking. Um, and so most uh, science classrooms in universities in the United States are not currently teaching students in this student-centered way, where we're designing the whole course around the challenges students have with the material, the way students think about 
um, the material. And so that's fundamentally the, the main problem with traditional instruction in the United States. Do these traditional approaches that you mentioned negatively impact students from some backgrounds more than others? And does this explain the low participation of many groups in STEM fields? Yeah, so I mean, you bring up a really important topic. So many STEM fields have very low gender, racial, and ethnic diversity. And so understanding why that is, is very important to a lot of people in in my field and in many fields. I mean, lots of people understandably care about this. And so it is the case that these traditional approaches to teaching negatively impact students from some backgrounds more than from other backgrounds. And the reason is that, you know, there's a very big range of preparation levels that students have when they come into undergraduate courses. And students that have low or poor biology preparation uh, tend to struggle more in these intro courses. They tend to get lower grades in these intro courses and they tend not to um, choose that particular subject as their major. And there's been some fantastic work largely out of Stanford University, but elsewhere as well, that has shown that prior preparation is the leading predictor of how students are going to do in their, in their introductory courses. And so knowing this reality that in most of our introductory classrooms, we're going to have students with a range of, of different prior preparations motivates action to uh, develop a course where even those students with poor prior preparation can succeed. They were all accepted to the university, and so they should all be given the opportunity to succeed. Um, because uh, the way that uh, school districts are funded in the United States uh, has a lot to do with property taxes, uh, it tends to be the case that poor high schools uh, with, with poor quality high school instructors tend to be in low socioeconomic areas. And this tends to correlate with race, this tend to, tends to correlate with ethnicity as well. And so what we end up seeing is that the Black, African-American, Hispanic students in our introductory courses have lower uh, or poor biology preparation due to no fault of their own, just the school districts that they come from. And low preparation is the leading predictor of how students are going to do in their first semester in an introductory course. And so these are the students who are, who are being effectively weeded out of the system in a traditional course that does not pay attention to the reasoning of, of students. These lists of facts do not help any students learn, but students with high, high or really high quality biology preparation, they tend to be able to do okay anyway because they have less learning maybe that they need to even do in the first place. And so we're never going to create equitable learning environments for our students if we do not center the instruction on their thinking, if we do not cut the content to be uh, less, less facts and less content, and if we do not go deeper into the material that we do present to them and give them time to think about it and reason about it. You know, what you said about how the traditional way to teach sciences doesn't benefit any student, even those with better biology preparation. It, it made me realize, like you're, you said that, you know, they tend to do okay, but also aren't most of these courses, don't they run on a curve? So it actually doesn't even like really matter if that student who yeah. has better biology prep actually has good biology prep. It just has to be better than everyone else class. I can see why dad asked you these really deep questions as a young child. It's a very, it's a very intuitive, thoughtful 
Well, I sucked in science classes, so I'm aware of the curves. And it gives me the opportunity to clarify something really important. When I say these, you know, students tend to do okay, it's not that they're learning biology, right? They do okay in that they get an A. But on uh, concept inventories, which are these tests that have gone through a lot of rigorous testing and we know that they really accurately measure knowledge of a subject, students bomb these tests. They bomb the concept inventories, even if they're getting the A in the course. So no one's really learning biology in these introductory biology classes that are, that are focused on this traditional approach. And yeah, the curve leads to this illusion, very problematic illusion, that indeed some people are learning, some people are talented, others are not learning, not talented, not, not science material. So the curve itself is fundamentally inequitable. The whole concept of a grading curve is fundamentally inequitable and it only rewards prior privilege in, in education. Instead of a curve where, where courses must move, is you know, a uh, criterion-based grading system where you're not graded relative to someone else, you're graded relative to the uh, criteria that is set by the instructor of the course for you know, what is it that must be known by the time this course is over? What must the student demonstrate that they are able to do or, or that they know to be considered pr proficient in the biology presented in this course? And if you demonstrate that, every single student who does should get an A, and there should be no limit on the number of A's. There's a lot of research that shows that the competitive nature of a lot of these intro courses is harmful for a lot of students. It is exceptionally harmful for women and for people of color. And in particular, it has to do with having this poor preparation coming into this environment where you have students, your peers who haven't had to work jobs. They were able to focus on school. They went to really exceptional high school programs. They maybe did after school programs in science. Of course, they're going to get the A. They're going to be on the top of the curve. It becomes really hard to feel that you belong in this space where only some people are allowed to succeed. And that is something that must change in our biology sequences, in our chemistry sequences, in all of these courses. It must change and, and it really can change quickly if, if departments and instructors want it to. Yeah, let's talk about this change. You mentioned or you referenced a lot of research, uh, prior research that's been around for a while demonstrating how this traditional approach to science education is, is not really working. So if these problems have been known for several decades, why isn't every college or university like eager to change how they're teaching science? Yeah, it's an important question. It's one that I don't think has a, a great answer, unfortunately. It's not the case that people aren't willing to kind of put the time into their courses. It's not the case that people don't care about their courses and their students. That's, that's really not what's going on. The truth is that all the reform that I am talking about, all the changes that I've been talking about, are what most people would agree is, is fundamental change. Fundamental change as opposed to incremental change. You know, incremental change assumes that the underlying system is okay and just tweaks to that system are sufficient to result in the types of change you're looking to see. But I'm really not talking about that type of change. I'm talking about fundamental change where the whole system has to, has to change as well. And so fundamental change understandably is much, much harder to do. And some of the best research on reform 
has suggested that one of the large barriers to this fundamental change is institutional barriers. So parts of the institution that limit the ability of these courses to change. And that, you know, that could be a lot of things. It could be that not enough resources are put into the, into the course, not enough professional development is provided for the faculty teaching the course. It could be a lot of things. And so institutions, according to this research, have a major role in having a, an environment where reform can actually take place and take place effectively, at least the type of reform we're really talking about. But there also may be something to the likely reality that a lot of faculty, a lot of people who are teaching these college courses may identify first as researchers or scientists and second as uh, teachers. And there is some research on this, but it's possible that this kind of disconnect between what they do with a lot of their job. I mean, a lot of, uh, of a you know, faculty member's job does involve teaching, but this disconnect with how they kind of spend their day and do their job and how they identify could potentially explain part of what makes this change so difficult. You know, these faculty, again, are willing to put the time in to modify their course. They're, they care about their students, but the types of modifications that are needed are, you know, not as simple as you know, oh, I need to kind of clarify this point in this lesson, or I need, you know, they're really fundamental changes that require engaging with evidence, evidence about what works. All right, my last question is an attempt to, to bring this conversation back around to something that is somewhat more relevant to my field and my audience. So whose responsibility is it to make sure that women and people of color have the opportunity to, to study science and work in science and work in tech if that's what they want to do? Clearly, you believe, and I think you're right, that, that the education system is part of that and they are partly responsible. But what about like the companies that I, I work with and I write about, the ones who might be hiring these people, for example? Are, do they have a, a role to play in, in solving this problem? And if so, what is that role? Yeah, I mean, we all we all have a role to play. I think that's kind of almost an obvious answer. But what is that role is uh, is an, is important. And my my answer to that question is it's the role where you have the most locus of control. So, you know, in my area where I work, my locus of control where I can affect the most change is undergraduate education. That's not necessarily the same domain that uh, a lot of the companies you're talking about have have control over and expertise in, but they absolutely have areas where they have expertise and areas where they have control. And those are where the focus should be because that's where real change can happen. What I am concerned about, especially in this past uh, year where there's been a huge swell of motivation and movement certainly in a lot of science departments, toward discussions about inclusivity in STEM, equity and diversity in STEM. And there's been a lot of discussion about what our actions should be, which is all extremely, extremely exciting, long overdue. But what concerns me is when the discussion about action is focused on domains or areas where we don't have the most control. 
where we, we can't enact that change now together with our current expertise. And I think that that poses the very real threat that some of our proposed actions will be uninformed and potentially harmful uh, to the people we're aiming to support and will have no way of measuring success and won't be successful even if we could measure success. And so that would, that's really what I think is important for everyone to, to think deeply about is where do I, in my current capacity as a professional in this field, have the largest locus of control? And how do I use that to welcome other people in, to prop other people up, to make systemic changes that will really make a difference? Jenna, it's been really nice talking to you more in depth about what it is that you do, because I've always sort of known, but this is definitely, you know, the most intense conversation we've had about it. That's good. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Well, Technically is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com.